is beautifully supposed by some that Israel's feast represents the course of time. This earth's days from creation down to the final end. The lamb slain at Passover commences it. And the eighth day of the happy feast of tabernacles is its close. While the Sabbath, the rest, God's rest in himself, and his creatures rest around him, both precedes and follows this course of time. Hello, and welcome to our third study of the Feast of the Lord, as given in Leviticus 23. I'm Robert Congdon, Director of Congdon Ministries International. As we begin our study of Israel's third appointment with God, the Feast of First Fruits, it's well to keep in mind the definition of a biblical feast. First of all, a feast of the Lord is an appointment set by God to meet with His people Israel at a specific time in history. You will recall that the seven feasts or appointments of the Lord each serve three purposes of God. First of all, they remember seven mountaintop historical experiences of the nation of Israel. Secondly, they picture seven steps in man's spiritual journey of life by picturing seven major spiritual doctrines. Thirdly, they serve as seven signposts on the road of history or time. Four have already been fulfilled, and three are coming in the near future. God's third appointment, the Feast of First Fruits, is the best defined feast in terms of history, of clarity, and doctrine. By turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 20, we read that Paul declares, But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. The context of this chapter undoubtedly is resurrection. With the added light of the New Testament era, we as believers perceive the meaning of Feast of First Fruits with a greater clarity than did the Old Testament saints. For a full understanding, however, we must study the original instructions for the feast as received by and understood by the nation of Israel. These original instructions are given in Leviticus 23, verses 10 and 11, where we read, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, When ye become in the land which I give unto you, and shall reap the harvest thereof, then ye shall bring a sheaf of the firstfruits of your harvest unto the priest. And he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord, to be accepted for you. On the morrow, after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. We'll now begin to study the four key elements of God's instruction contained in Leviticus 23, verses 10 and 11. The first key element is the timing of the very first observance of the feast as a nation, the nation of Israel. We read that God says, When ye be come into the land which I give unto you. Now recall that God instituted these laws concerning the feast back at the foot of Mount Sinai when the nation was first formed. In our second session on the feast, we saw that they had come out of Egypt following their deliverance from slavery, memorialized in the first feast, the Feast of Passover. 
Then they were separated by God from the Egyptians at the Red Sea. This was memorialized by the first day of the second feast, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Now, logic would tell us that the third feast would follow shortly thereafter. However, God's first instruction concerning this feast was that it would be ob not observed until they had come into the land which God gave them. Biblical history tells us that there was a 40-year gap between the giving of the feast's instructions and the first time it was ever observed. Anticipating this gap, the scripture prophesied this delay in Leviticus 23.10. Notice carefully. When ye become into the land which I give unto you, and shall reap the harvest thereof, then, notice, when, then, then ye shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest unto the priest. Very obviously, the question that comes to mind is, why was there a 40-year gap? Now, at this point, the people of Israel consisted of over 2 million people that were linked by their ancestry, by a distinctive culture and life that they had in Egypt, and a common language. To become a nation, what they lacked was a land of their own and a government. In other words, they were a people without a nation. Until they entered the promised land, as God promised them in Leviticus, they would not be a nation. This gap of 40 years would achieve this unity needed to be a nation of Israelites. Now, it's very clear that since God prophesied this gap of time, it wasn't a mere incident, nor did it catch God unawares. Oh my, they've rebelled ten times, I'll have to create a gap. Not at all. You see, for God, the gap was part of his plan needed to develop the nation and people of Israel into a united body as a country. Now, just recall that after separating from Egypt and leaving its boundaries, they entered the Sinai Peninsula. They then crossed the Red, or sometimes translated Reed Sea, and came to the very same mountain where God had initially instructed Moses. Three months after leaving Egypt, Moses personally meets with God for further instructions. Now, this is related in Exodus 19, the first three verses. These instructions from God given personally to Moses are now called the Mosaic Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant specified the laws and ordinances of the newborn nation. For all practical purposes, it was the nation's constitution. Now, with a constitution, they could have a government. All that remained for nationhood was the territory, or the land, the promised land. When Moses presented the terms of the covenant to the people, they voiced their agreement, and they accepted its terms wholeheartedly as a unit. Exodus 24, verse 3, describes that event. And we read, Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord, and all the judgments, and notice, all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord hath said, we will do. The people's acceptance was then sealed by the sprinkling of blood upon them. 
We read in Exodus 24, verse 8, Behold, the blood of the covenant which the Lord hath made with you, that's Israel, concerning all these words. Now, immediately after this wholehearted, unified agreement to do all that the Lord has said, wants them to do, and requires of them, Moses returned to God on Mount Sinai for a, an additional 40 days of instructions. Unfortunately, the people's commitment to their new agreement did not last long. As the days went by and Moses' absence lengthened, the people grew restive. Instead of waiting in faith, they took matters into their own hands and acted. Exodus 32 verse 1 relates, And when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down out of the mount, the people gathered themselves together unto Aaron, and said unto him, Up, make us gods, which shall go before us. For as for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we want not what has become of him. You see, the people's impatience resulted in their violation of the very first article of the New Covenant. For Exodus 20 gives that first article of the New Covenant. In verses 2 to 3 it says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, thou shalt have no other gods before me. When the people go and give up and violate that first article, we read that they formed the golden calf. Note carefully, though, this was not the first time the people had questioned God and had sinned against him. During the first two years of their journey, from the Red Sea to the borders of Canaan, national Israel would commit nine acts of rebellion against God. With each fresh act would reflect a progressively greater attitude of disobedience and discontent toward God and his plan. God, in turn, recognized that the people were testing him with each new rebellion. Let's consider these 10 rebellions and you'll want to see the chart that I've included uh, with this video in the comments. Uh, 10 times they basically denied God. They denied God's sovereignty, his protection, his provision, his wisdom, his guidance, his uniqueness, his understanding, his sufficiency, his leadership, and his trustworthiness. Surely God could have abandoned them. Instead, he created a gap. This gap, though, was not accidental. So now we have to consider this fact in light of the fact that this was part of God's plan. Why did God delay their entry into the Promised Land? As we read the scriptural history, we realize Israel continued to rebel for this total of ten times, where as a nation they expressed a distinct total distrust in God's protection. God had promised them that he would react. In Numbers 14, in verse 8, God says, If the Lord delight in us, then he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land which floweth with milk and honey. Only rebel not ye against the Lord, neither fear ye the people of the land, 
for they are bread for us. Their defense is departed from them, and the Lord is with us. Fear them not. There was no excuse. They had been warned. And in fact, in verse 22, we read that because of all those men which have seen my glory and my miracles, which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness, and have tempted or tried or rebelled me now these ten times, and have not hearkened to my voice, surely they shall not see the land which I swore unto their fathers, neither shall any of them that provoked me see it. The story is familiar to all of you, I'm sure. When the Israelites reached the borders of Canaan, Moses sent 12 spies to view the land and its people. Although the land was beautiful and fruitful, it also contained powerful inhabitants. Lacking faith in God's power, 10 of the 12 spies demoralized the people and incited them to rebellion against Moses and ultimately against God. Once again, the people forgot God's promise. For in Exodus 23, verse 20, we read, God promised, Behold, I send an angel before thee to keep thee in the way and to bring thee into the place which I have prepared. Beware of him and obey his voice. Provoke him not, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. Not after the first rebellion, but after the tenth rebellion, God acted. And again, Numbers 14, verse 22. Because all those men who have seen my glory and my miracles which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and have tempted or tested me these ten times and have not hearkened to my voice, surely they shall not see the land which I swore unto their fathers, neither shall any of them that provoketh me see it. Ten acts of rebellion resulted in 38 more years of delay in entering the land of possessing the territory and becoming a true nation. Consider the following parallels between Egypt and Israel. For Egypt, ten times God tested them to yield to him. The result was ten plagues against Egypt. Their purpose was it was a judgment upon the gods of Egypt. Their sin was the rejection of God's supremacy. For them, the result was the loss of slave workforce and a loss of their firstborn. For Israel, they had ten rebellions against God. The purpose was a judgment upon the people who had rejected God. Their sin was the rejection of God's supremacy, and their result was the loss of the right of entry to the land and their physical life for that generation that rejected God. Only their children would be able to enter the promised land. See, ever since the garden, man has rebelled against the true God and creator of the universe. It is really God's grace that allows him to continue to patiently work with man and seek man's response to him. One sin condemned every man to separation from God. However, one act of sin in God's people does not condemn them and cast them out. Rather, God patiently works with those who are his. For this 38-year period, this 38 years of wandering, served the dual purpose for Israel. It purged the nation of its unbelievers, those who had rebelled against God, and it also developed the fear of the Lord in an upcoming generation. 
In a demonstration of his supremacy, God brings Israel to the entrance of the land and tells Joshua in Joshua chapter 1, verse 2, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, thou and all this people, unto the land which I do give to them, even to the children of Israel. The time had come for the purged nation to enter its future land. During those years of wandering, an estimate of maybe 200 funerals a day as the people that rebelled against God died off. 200 people a day had left that remembrance of the power of God and the fear of the Lord as they would enter the land and prepared them to obey him at this point. In God's province, he brought the nation of Canaan to the spring harvest of the land. In Joshua chapter 4, verse 19, we read, And the people came out of Jordan on the tenth day of the first month and encamped in Gilgal in the east border of Jericho. This day was the day of preparation, this tenth day of the first month. It was the tenth day of preparation for the upcoming Passover on the 14th. You see, on the tenth of the month, the Hebrews carried on from that day forward. They would select the lambs that would shed the blood at the Passover so that they would remember that God had delivered them on that day 40 years earlier. The next three days in the land for the first time were additional preparation for the conquest that God would bring to the nation. As Israel came to the remembrance of the Passover, the final aspect of the wilderness ended. In Joshua 5, verse 10, we read, And the children of Israel encamped in Gilgal, and kept the Passover on the fourteenth day of the month, at even, in the plains of Jericho. Yes, they observed Passover, as they had begun way, way back in Egypt. The next day, they ate manna for the last time as they began the first Sabbath of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. You'll find that in verses 11 to 12 of Joshua 5. Now, on the very next day now, after the manna ended, they observed the Sabbath of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The very next day, they ate of the fruit of their new land for the first time. Remember what God had prophesied? God had said, when you enter the land... And now God commanded the Israelites to celebrate the Feast of First Fruits on the morrow after the Sabbath. The Sabbath being that first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. They had now reached the Promised Land. They had now fulfilled the third feast as they ate of the first fruit of the Promised Land. As we will shortly see, this delay of 40 years adds a new element to the purposes of the feast. This second key element of the instructions for the Feast of First Fruits of the passage of Leviticus 23 is the connecting of the Feast of First Fruits and later the Feast of Pentecost to Israel's agricultural calendar. 
In God's instructions, he has said of the Feast of First Fruits that this day they shall reap the harvest thereof. In other words, on the first day of the feast, Israeli farmers begin to gather the barley harvest of the land. For you see, barley is the first crop to be harvested. Now, before gathering the barley harvest for themselves that they will either use to eat or sell, however, the farmers will go out to their field, they will gather the first fruits that have come to be ripe and ready for harvesting, the first fruits, they will gather the first fruits and they will offer it to the Lord according to the law of Exodus 23:19. They do this much as we give a tithe of our earnings to the Lord, the first to the Lord. So too the Jewish farmer gives a tithe of his crop, his first fruit, to the Lord. As you will recall, a feast of the Lord always requires Israel to gather as a united group at the time and place appointed by God, where, remember, they will honor him in worship. Thus, all of Israel begins the harvest on this same day, the day of first fruit, and they worship the Lord by bringing their first fruit tithe to the Lord. This act of bringing it to the Lord is the third key element of this feast. It is worshiping the Lord. They bring in their sheaf of the first fruit of barley, and they bring it to the priest, who the priest then, according to the instructions of Leviticus 23, waves this sheaf of barley. You see, the worship begins when the officials of Israel gather a sheaf, that's approximately three and a half pecks, of barley. They bring it to the Lord and they wave it before him. Now, this term wave motion isn't like our hand waving saying hi or goodbye. No, it's a different motion. It follows a specific path. Interestingly, from church age uh, aspect, if you will, if we stop and we think of Roman Catholicism, they make the sign of the Roman cross, rising up, then to the right and to the left. That is the same motion as a wave offering to the Lord. This would give us a picture of an upcoming fulfillment of the Feast of First Fruit. Furthermore, this sheaf that is brought in, that the farmer has gathered up, it's really the first of the crop to be ready for harvesting. The farmer gathers it up. He knows that whatever condition that sheaf is and that first fruits that he's going to give to the Lord, if he looks at it, its quality and its quantity will tell him what is his entire harvest will be like. So in other words, the first fruit is of the best quality and the quantity indicator of the harvest to come. And so this gives him hope for his harvest, encouragement, or in a bad year, it says to him to stop and think, why has the Lord cut back his harvest? So having seen the first element, the second element, and the third element coming together, we are ready for the fourth key element, which is the calendar day of the feast. We are told in the instructions that it is on the morrow after the Sabbath that the priest shall wave it. In other words, the next day after the Sabbath. Uh, unlike Passover, which is designated as the 14th day of the first month, which can be 
uh, any day of the week, but it'd be the 14th day. So it could be on a Monday, it could be on a Wednesday. Also, the Feast of Unleavened Bread begins on the 15th day of the first month. God gives a specific day of the month for each of those. But interestingly, he doesn't for the Feast of First Fruit. In this feast, he merely says, on the morrow after the Sabbath. This apparent vagueness has caused some difficulty in determining the day of the Feast of First Fruit. In order to understand what day of the week it truly is, we need to understand the term Sabbath. Our Bible refers to Sabbath many times throughout the scriptures, and it's given out sometimes just by itself as a general term. What we don't realize always is that there are four different types of Sabbaths in the scripture. There is what we're all familiar with, the weekly Sabbath. That's the seventh day of the week. It's the last day of the week. It's meant to be a day of rest and ceasing from your labors. We call that the weekly Sabbath. But there is also Sabbaths, or days of no servile work, in other words, ceasing of work, on given feast days. When God designates that that feast is to have a day of no servile work, or a Sabbath, we call that Sabbath a feast Sabbath. That can fall on any day of the week. It, it doesn't have to be a seventh day of the week. It could be any day. But it's the day that the feast is specified. Additionally, there's a third type of Sabbath in the Bible. That is called the sabbatical year. Every year, 360 days long, goes on, and for six years, the farmers continue to harvest their land. The seventh year, they stop planting and harvesting the land, and they give the land a rest. You could call it a land Sabbath, Leviticus 25.4. So six years of harvesting, the seventh year is a land Sabbath year. Finally, there can be the Jubilee Sabbath. After 49 years of the normal cycles of life in Israel, the 50th year is a Jubilee year. Leviticus 25 verse 8 tells us that in that year they are to set free all the slaves and do all countless things and it is a ceasing of the 50-year cycle, if you will. So we have four Sabbaths. We have the weekly Sabbath, the feast Sabbath, the sabbatical or land Sabbath, and the Jubilee Sabbath. Keeping that in mind, we can see why some Jewish groups and a few modern writers hold that the Sabbath in question is not any particular Sabbath for the feast, but simply the last or seventh day of the week after the Sabbath of the unleavened bread. Now that's their answer. But if you carefully think it through, the terms, there are four Sabbaths that can be. You also think the purposes of the feasts, and you study the scriptures, you'll find that Orthodox Jews and conservative Bible students believe that the Feast of First Fruits is in reality the very day after the first day of unleavened bread. So in other words, the first day of unleavened bread is a feast Sabbath. The very next day is the feast of first fruits, and that too is a feast Sabbath. So therefore we can work backwards, if you will, and determine that Passover is on the 14th. Unleavened bread begins on the 15th day of the first month and proceeds for seven days, but 
the Feast of First Fruit is the day after the first day of unleavened bread, therefore it's on the 16th day of the first month. Now God gives us this way of determining the day on the calendar of the feast in much as he will do the same way with Pentecost. And God wants us to understand certain prophetic truths by doing that, which we will only understand as we move ahead into the New Testament and see how both the Feast of First Fruits and the Feast of Pentecost will be vital and important to the end of the Jewish age, if you want to call it, the national age until God sets aside Israel and will bring in the church age, in which case God will work with the church. And then at the end of the church age, he will again work with this nation of Israel. So the understanding of why God didn't say, well, on the 16th day, do this, will come later as we get into the other feasts that will carry us on through the last historical events of the feasts. Thus is this fourth key element combined with the other three that will enable us to understand the entire significance of the doctrine that is taught by the Feast of First Fruits. Often in history, God uses one historic event to prefigure a greater event. The first event, therefore, serves as a picture of the more significant future event. First fruit performs just such a role. The second event to unfold on the 10th day of the first month came in April of 32 AD. On this day, the scriptures command the nation of Israel to select a perfect lamb for the upcoming annual Passover on the 14th of the first month. On the 10th day of the first month of that April, Jesus Christ entered Jerusalem offering himself in peace as the King of Israel, the Messiah. The crowds that gathered to meet him proclaimed him the King of Israel that cometh in the name of the Lord, as John recorded in chapter 12, verse 13. Unfortunately, the majority of the people were not looking for a spiritual Messiah who would save them from their sins. Instead, they hoped that Jesus would deliver them from the political bondage of Rome. Just four days later, on Passover, the 14th, the same crowd that had claimed him king turned on him and demanded his crucifixion. Now the next day was the 15th day of the first month. If you'll remember, that's the first Sabbath of unleavened bread. On that day, Jesus Christ, sinless, unleavened body remained in the tomb. Then on the 16th of the month, the Feast of Firstfruits, Christ arose from the dead. Paul unquestionably refers to this event and to the day on which it occurred when he declares Christ the first fruit of them that slept in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 20. Obviously, God ordained this sequence of three feasts, Passover, unleavened bread, and first fruits, as part of Israel's national history that would include then these events in Jerusalem. In light of the New Testament, however, it becomes equally clear 
that God also ordained it as a picture of a far greater spiritual historical event that would ultimately benefit all of mankind. These great historical events in the nation of Israel serve to clarify further the doctrines of God, both those that apply to the feast and those that more widely apply to saints of all ages. Now, God, by allowing Israel to enter the promised land on the anniversary of its deliverance from Egypt, God wants to tie together deliverance, Passover, sanctification, unleavened bread, and the meaning of the first fruits feast. In the same way, these three feasts coincide with the Lord's death, his burial, and yes, you guessed it, resurrection. Through these three events, God fulfills the covenant promise that he gave to Abraham, a blessing for all the families of the earth, back in Genesis 12, verse 3. So what we have is the significance of the first three feasts of the Lord. The historical timing, Old Testament, applied to Israel, the Passover in Egypt, unleavened bread, separated from Egypt, first fruits, first blessing of the promised land. But now we come to the New Testament. We find applied to mankind the doctrines, the Passover, the cross, unleavened bread, spiritual separation, first fruits, Christ arose, first of many to come. Therefore, the doctrine of the first three feasts that is taught is redemption, separation, and resurrection. Now, to further understand the doctrinal background for the Feast of First Fruits, we must recall the meaning of the phrase first fruits. The root word for first fruits may be translated beginning or best. This same word form appears over 50 times in the Old Testament and usually refers to the first or the beginning of an entire series. It can include the idea of the choicest or best of a group of class of things, particularly in reference to items to be set aside for God's service and sacrifices. God uses this very form in the first words of Genesis when he says, in the beginning. He does that to suggest that the first event of creation was the first in a series of such events. Thus, considering the meaning of the word first fruit, considering the events that we've already seen in Israel's history, three major teachings emerge from this feast. Number one, the feast of first fruit demonstrates God's provision for his people, Israel, when they entered the land. Second, God expanded the purpose of the feast after the Israelites entered the land. In addition to commemorating a specific historical moment, God also uses the feast as a means by which Israel could thank him for his provision and acknowledge his supremacy over all each and every year of their lives. Third, the feast looks to the future, with the best being a representative of good things to come. In a purely physical context, the first fruit of the harvest symbolized the upcoming crops that awaited harvesting in the fields. In the spiritual realm, Christ's resurrection 
symbolizes the first fruits of resurrections that will come. A resurrection parade, which we have a separate video on, that tells us there is a whole harvest of resurrected believers who will someday follow Christ as a result of his first fruit resurrection. Thus, the Feast of First Fruits memorializes the mountaintop moment in Israel's history when it entered into the promised land and ate of the fruit of that land. For the believer, the Feast of First Fruit teaches that from birth into the new life, he too will be resurrected, glorified as our Lord was at his resurrection. Christ was the first fruit and the best, but we shall also live because he lives. And we will live with him in eternity, if you will, in the promised land that he is promising. But to be included in this promised resurrection and glorification, to be with the Lord, you must make a choice. That choice is where you will spend eternity. Christ was the first fruit of those who are his. If you are not Jesus Christ, you aren't part of it. You have no future with him. The question is, are you part of the harvest, if you will, of the saved that is to come? God tells us in the scripture there are only two eternity destinations that you have to decide for, for yourself, personally. He tells us in John chapter 3, verse 36, He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. Now, everlasting life means eternal life in the presence and with God the Father, Jesus Christ, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But then John says, But he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. You see, for the one rejecting Jesus Christ, it means an eternity separated from God. An eternity in which you must pay for your sins. The Bible tells us all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All have sinned and come short of God's standard. That standard is perfection. When you sin, you commit offenses against God that must be paid for. God created a place called hell that originally was created for the angels that rebelled against God, but now will include any human being who rejects God's offer of deliverance from their sins. You see, you have that burden of sin. You have the wages of sin. The Bible tells us the wages of sin is death. That means spiritual separation from God. You have this enormous wage that you have created with each time you sin. Those sins must be paid for to reconcile you to God to be able to spend eternity with him. Thanks be to God that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world. You see, God so loved the world, that's all of us, that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes on him should not perish, should not have to spend eternity separated from him, but should have everlasting life. You see, what happened was Jesus Christ, as God, came into the world, became a man. As he walked upon this earth, he lived a sinless life, never committing a single sin. He was crucified on a cross, giving his life a death 
to pay for your sins and my sins. They were all placed upon him. And at that transaction between he and God the Father, the sins were paid for. He compressed your eternity of sin payments that you would have to make in hell into that afternoon. He compressed mine. He compressed all men's there. And he paid the wages of sin through his death. Now, if Jesus Christ was just a deluded man who said, oh, I'm the Son of God and I can pay for your sins. Well, when he was crucified, he would have died, been buried, like every other man. But no, on the Feast of First Fruit, Jesus Christ rose from the grave to show that he was alive and had paid the penalty and no longer was the sins bound to create that eternal death. He showed that any man who would receive his payment for their sins, he did it as a substitute for them by shedding his blood on the cross. Anyone who accepts that free gift from God as the payment of their sins can have eternal life with Jesus Christ. The Bible tells us, For by grace are ye saved through faith, that not of yourself, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. You see, if you keep trying your entire life to somehow pay for your sins by being good, by going to church, by being baptized, you, you name it, whatever you think is paying for your sins, they can never pay for your sins. It's not of works. Otherwise, you could boast about it. No, it's the gift of God. God offers you this free gift of salvation if you simply accept his son's substitutionary death for you and you accept that Jesus Christ is God who did it. In other words, you have to recognize who he is. He is God, the Son. The Bible says, To as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons or children of God. You see, you enter uniquely into this family of believers that will spend eternity with Jesus Christ and with God. You do that by simply asking Jesus Christ to come into your heart to believe by faith alone that he did it and that because he did it, you are freed from your sins. Jesus Christ says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man will open the door, I will come in to him and dwell with him. Jesus Christ will indwell you and you will have eternity with you. But again, the choice is yours. John 3.36 He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth upon him. That's your choice. If you have questions, contact us. We're glad to answer your questions via email or see someone you know who has talked about knowing Jesus Christ as their Savior and ask them and have them show from the Scriptures how by faith you can receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. And this first fruit resurrection, this glorified body of the future, will be yours. It's our prayer that you will have part of that resurrection and that life. Now, until we meet again for the fourth in our series on the Feast of the Lord, may the Lord bless you mightily, and we'll see you either here or in the air. Thank you.